Welcome to episode 5 of the Dorothy L. Sayers podcast. Today we're going to have some fun with theology. Particularly, we're going to learn some ways to think about the Trinity using Sayers' masterpiece, The Mind of the Maker. I'm your host, Lindsay Scholl, and let's get started. The Christian doctrine of the Trinity ranks as one of the most mysterious aspects of the Creed. At root, it is the idea that God the Father, God the Son, or Jesus Christ, and God the Holy Spirit are all equally God. They are not each other, but they are equally God. Not three gods, one God. Like most complicated religious concepts, it has received praise and ridicule. Chesterton in The Everlasting Man calls it a balance of beautiful interdependence and intimacy. The preacher, Charles Spurgeon, once said that to believe and love the Trinity is to possess the key of theology. On the other hand, Thomas Jefferson said that, quote, ridicule is the only, he didn't say quote, just, I'm just pointing that out. Okay, let me start over. Ridicule is the only weapon which can be used against unintelligible propositions. Ideas must be distinct before reason can act upon them. And no man ever had a distinct idea of the Trinity. It is mere abracadabra of the the mountebanks calling themselves the priests of Jesus, end quote. And if you're thinking Thomas Jefferson said that, our Thomas Jefferson, founding father Thomas Jefferson, yeah, he said that. You can find it in the letter to Francis Adrian Vanderkamp on 30th of July, 1810. I have cited Mind of the Maker, Sayer's work, Mind of the Maker, quite a bit in this podcast. At one point, I think I called it a collection of mini essays, loosely connected. That wasn't quite fair to Sayer's sense of organization. The book is entirely about the Trinity. And in reading it, we read a bunch of things, but mostly we learn that the Trinity isn't so mysterious. It isn't an unintelligible proposition, and it isn't abracadabra. Here's what the mind of the maker says. The idea of something being equal and the same, yet different, is not foreign. It's as familiar as a book you're reading, the play you watched last October. There are trinities all around us. They're actually quite casual. So how does that work? That's the point of Sayers' book, The Mind of the Maker. And and the secret to your thesis is actually in the title. God is a maker, but there are other makers. Most of us are makers. Think about it. You want to have a conversation. You have an idea about how the conversation will go, a topic, a hope, maybe even a plan. But there's also the expression of the conversation, the actual words. And then there's the actual breath moving from your lungs out into the air. But it's a conversation. So it implies a relationship with someone else, a communication to someone else. All of these factors are present in a marriage proposal or a long-awaited argument or even a fruitless talk you've had 10 times already. Sayer says it like this, quoting from one of her own plays. Now, she's quoting this play in... The Mind of the Maker, and she's quoting her uh, a play called Zeal for Thy House, which if you read Crystal Downing's book on Sayers called Subversive, you realize that the Zeal for Thy House was a pretty significant turning point in Sayers' career as far as her spirituality, as far as her seriousness about this Christian stuff. Okay, I'm going to read from Zeal for Thy House. I'm going to try and do it slowly because it's a pretty dense speech. This is St. Michael speaking, not St. Michael, Archangel Michael, although she calls it St. Michael, which is interesting. Okay, I'm going to start. For every work or act of creation is threefold, 
an earthly trinity to match the heavenly. First, not in time, but merely in order of enumeration, there is a creative idea, passionless, timeless, beholding the whole work complete at once, the end and the beginning, and this is the image of the Father. Second, there is a creative energy or activity, begotten of that idea, working in time from the beginning to the end with sweat and passion, being incarnate in the bonds of matter, and this is the image of the word. Third, there is a creative power, the meaning of the work and its response in the lively soul, and this is the image of the indwelling spirit. And these three are one, each equally in itself the whole work, whereof none can exist without the other, and this is the image of the Trinity. These three things are present in every work, the idea, the energy, and the power. In other words, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. None of these three are separable. It's just how makers operate, how they have an idea. They have an energy that expresses the idea. They have a power that receives the idea. So Sayers is a writer, and she uses an example of a writer to show these three unified existences. But, she says, quote, what is true of the writer is true of the painter, the musician, and all other workers of creative imagination in whatever form. So let's talk about her breakdown of these three things, existences, persons. First, the father or the idea. Same thing. By the way, I mentioned this in the quote. She mentions it in the quote. But for you theologians out there, the word first is not in the sense of time. There is no idea existence before the others. It's a different sort of first. So this idea of idea is so basic that we forget about it. Let's think of a popular work such as A Christmas Carol. This is my example, not Sayers, but she'll be fine with it. We all know the Christmas Carol story. I grew up on a combination of the television Disney version of it and the unequaled cinematic version the Muppet's Christmas Carol, which is just simply a great, a great version of the Christmas Carol story. Like it, you should go watch it. Some of you may have seen Jim Carrey's version or Patrick Stewart's or even read the book that started it all. We know Scrooge. We know Bob Cratchit. And we know who is a better man. We grasp the idea of the spiritual world intervening in one individual's life to save him. We know how the story ends. There are many similar ideas and smaller ideas that, sorry, not smaller, not similar, ideas that drive the Christmas carol and one unified concept of justice and redemption that kind of ties it all together. And yet, how do we know the idea of the Christmas carol? How did Dickens know the idea of the Christmas carol? Well, words, words in his head, words on the page, words and pictures in the movies for us. You can't get to the idea of a work without some manifestation of the idea. Okay? That manifestation, whether in words or pictures or music, is, Sayer says, the energy. I like to call it the execution, but maybe that sounds a little grim. So we can stick with her term of energy. Expression is also good, so is activity. So we have the, first we have the father, or the idea that the the thing that drives it, the thing that unifies it, whatever the work is. The, the Well, I don't want to go on too much further because I, just, I have to use words to talk about it. And those words that express the idea 
are the energy of that idea. In a good work, the energy serves the idea. When Scrooge says that if the poor are going to die, they'd better do it and decrease the surplus population, those very words serve the idea that Scrooge is a heartless man who doesn't care about individuals. Okay, so the energy does the will, you could say, of the idea. And, and likewise, Christ, the Son of God, shows the Father through his own life on earth. He manifested, and he does the will of the Father, just like words manifest and serve the idea. Here's what Sayer says. And I've got a quote right here, and I'm going to look it up. I think I've got it actually typed out. Look at me. Yeah, let's just read my type version. Quite simply, every choice of an episode or a phrase or a word is made to conform to the pattern of the entire book. This truth, which is difficult to convey in explanation, is quite clear and obvious in experience. It manifests itself plainly enough when the writer says or thinks that is or is not the right phrase meaning that a phrase which does or does not correspond to the reality of the idea. And this, I think, she says this is hard to explain, the difference between energy and idea, and by experience. So let's just kind of sit here for just a second. And for any of you who have ever written a letter or a paper or a story or a song, you're, you're strumming along and you think, mm, that's not quite right. It's not that the sentence itself is evil, like you have just written a morally bad sentence, is that it doesn't fit. Just doesn't fit. And sometimes you can explain why you can't, or you can't explain why. It's like, yeah, that's not quite right. So you, if you're a good, if you're a good writer or a good musician, you kill your darlings and you kind of set it aside, put it in a scrap file, leave it for another project, but you know that it doesn't fit in this project because it doesn't conform to the idea. Okay. Both the idea of the Christmas carol and the energy or activity of the Christmas carol are the Christmas carol. You don't get one without the other. I can't even talk about an idea without using words. So just as you don't have the father without the son. So you can't understand the father. You can't access the father without the son. And so far, we are just golden on Christian theology here, I think. Everybody from Athanasius to Pope John Paul II would be okay with this. So what about the third member of the Trinity? Sayers says, It is a thing which flows back to the writer from his own activity and makes him, as it were, the reader of his own book. It is also the means by which the activity is communicated to the other readers and which produces a corresponding response in them. In fact, from the reader's point of view, it is the book. Okay, that's what Sayers says. This is the third member of the Trinity. It's Now this, I'm going to admit, I have the hardest time with this one. I get the idea of the idea. I get the energy manifestation of the words, but this, the, the spirit member of the Trinity um, in this analogy, it's a little trickier for me. Uh, but a sayer says it's basically the reading of the book, the communication of the book. This is the power of the Christmas carol or any other book you read. In the same way, the Holy Spirit of God is the gift, the helper, the power of God towards us and in us. It's a, it's a communicator, which I think is pretty good Christian theology. Um, it's the kind of inner, it's that, it's that which is between uh, God and us, in a way, communicates. And, and also, actually, kind of between God and God. So I'm going to, okay, so filioque. 
I just did a big leap, big leap here. I want to pause to explain a bit of Christian history and Christian theology. If you're familiar with the term filioque, you know that it comes from the Latin version of the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed is what establishes the equality of the father and the son with the father. And that says that there are the same substance and all of that. They, they did a whole d- debate over it in the Council of Nicene 300s with uh, Her- Arius, who was condemned. Uh, I, you know, okay, by the way, by the way, I say condemned, but I guess with Constantine in charge, there probably was some actual physical condemnation. Um, we say condemned as heretics as if there were always, you know, inquisitorial torches ready to be lit and, and burn them. That's not really the case. But Arius's ideas were rejected, and the idea that the son is completely equal with the father and not subordinate at all was approved in the Council of Nicaea. And there's this extra clause in the, in this, the, in the synod and the creed of Ni- Nicaea that says, uh, and the Holy Spirit, and where the Holy Spirit proceeds from. And in the Western tradition, from like Charlemagne onwards, it says the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, filioque in Latin, and the Son. And this caused a big controversy between the Eastern Church and the Western Church, because the Western Church has this filioque, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. They're all equal, but somehow he proceeds from them. And the, the Eastern Church never said, hey, we approve it. There was no council to decide this. We don't, we don't, you can't just add stuff to the Nicene Creed. And so it caused a bit of a split. And Sayers, being a Western Christian, she is okay with filioque. And she has this kind of cool little statement about, we'll get back to Mind of the Maker here in a sec. I mean, this is literally, I'm quoting from Mind of the Maker here. She says, a creative power is a third person of the writer's trinity. It is not the same thing as the energy, which for greater clearness, I ought to, greater clearness, I ought to perhaps have called the activity, though it proceeds from the idea and the energy together. Okay, so say that last part again, the creative power or the third person of the Trinity proceeds from the idea and the energy together. And I have written in the margin of my book, filioque. This is the idea that um, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the father of the son. And if you read Augustine on that, he kind of has this cool idea where he compares it. No, he doesn't compare it to a a battery because he didn't know what batteries were. But he talks about the writer I read who is describing Augustine's compared it to a battery, like this charge is going back and forth. And he's like the electricity produced by God the Father and God the Son. And so he's like channeling energy, which is a neat idea. Um, I think that pretty sure Eastern Orthodox people can read this section of the Mind of the Maker and still be okay with the spirit being a, a channel. Whether it proceeds from just the Father or the Father and the Son, it's the our connection to a book. It's how we read it. It's if, if a book isn't read, if I never read a book, it's not a book to me. Like I don't, I don't know anything about it. I don't have a connection with us with it. Um, and so the let's see if I can say it a little more clearly. The third person of the Trinity, according to Sayers, is the power of the book. It is when the writer reads his own book, even, is how he responds to it. And it's, um, let me just go ahead and read this whole section. 
It is a thing which flows back to the writer from his own activity and makes him, as it were, the reader of his own book. It is also, of course, a means by which any activity is communicated to other readers, which produces a corresponding response in them. In fact, from the reader's point of view, it is the book. By it, they perceive the book, both as a process in time and as an eternal whole, and react to it dynamically. It is at this point we begin to understand what St. Hilary means in saying of the Trinity, eternity is in the Father, form in the image, of, form in the image and use in the gift. So that's the third member of the writer's trinity and the actual trinity. So to summarize, Sayers says that if you were to ask a writer which is the real book, his idea of it, his activity in writing it, or its return to himself and power, he would be at a loss to tell you because these things are in essentially inseparable. It's just how the creative mind works. Now, Sayers, who is ever concerned about proper doctrine and representing the teachings of the church well, pauses here to point out that all of this can exist in the imagination. A writer can express a story in his own head. He can manifest it in his own head and read it back to himself in his own head. He doesn't need a materially written document for the idea to be activated in power. Just so, God doesn't need the material expression of his creation. But a creative completeness does lend itself to creation, material creation. I mean, if the author's got this idea, he wants to write about it. And so he writes a book with pen and ink and paper and all that stuff. Now, Sayers says, all of this that I've gone through within the first 40 pages of the book. So what are the other 150 pages about? Well, there's a lot it says about the implications of all of this, this idea of the Trinity. And there are several examples she works through. It's actually a really great piece of literary criticism. I'd say that Mind of the Maker actually has two great strengths. One, it helps us to see how a trinity can be possible. We don't have to believe in it, but it doesn't have to be foreign. It's something that's around us in every creative work. Also, it talks about literature quite a bit. And this episode is about God, not the works of man. So we are not going to talk about its literary commentary, although it is fabulous. But... The Mind of the Maker gives us, like, in the first, actually, like, it's not even 20 pages that she really lays it out, this idea of how the Trinity can be accessible. And it is accessible. It's all around us. So, I've got a few things. I want to wrap it up here. I'm going to let you chew on this just to review. The Father is the idea. The Son is a manifestation of the idea. The Spirit is is the reception, the communication, the power of the idea. All of these things work together and they're inseparable. Think about a book that you have on your shelf and you look at, well, just pick some friends and you put a book down on the table and you say, where is this book? Where is Harry Potter? And you're looking at the book on the table and you think, well, it's there. But it's also in your mind if you've read it. It's also in J.K. Rowling's mind. It's also in physical form all over the place. Where is Harry Potter? It's, it's all over. Now, that's more than a trinity. That's, but it does show how a thing can be unified and diversified at the same time. Uh, if you want to get a chance, if you take a chance to read the mind, of, it's one of those books where if you just pick it up and flip through it, you're going to get something quality. I mean, she has this great com com conversation about characters and free will. 
and how a writer can write a character, but as she writes it, she sees that the character has a mind of its own. And the character has to express something that is in keeping with his character. And if the writer doesn't allow the character to do that, that's that's a trespass of the idea. She also talks about how uh, this is regarding literature. And so we can see how that connects to um, our own views of God and his working in the universe. She also, ha- she also has this idea of evil and how when we think about God as a creator, as a writer, evil becomes a little more understandable because let's say Shakespeare, she uses Shakespeare example. He writes Hamlet. He creates Hamlet. And the minute he creates Hamlet, there is a not Hamlet. There is an almost Hamlet. There is an imitation Hamlet. There's all sorts of bad Hamlets the minute there's a Hamlet at all. And this connects to kind of this moral, well, metaphysical idea of evil as not being like nothingness, but also in a way, a moral understanding of evil. I'm going to read this section and because I, I just think it's a really great view into the character of God, the creator. And then we're going to shut it down. Let me flip over to page. And this is 101. Okay. 101. Now in a sense, it is true to say that the past was not Hamlet before Hamlet was created or thought of. It is true, but it is meaningless, since apart from Hamlet, there is no meaning that we can possibly attach to the term not Hamlet. So that was the idea I was talking to. Now I'm going to skip over to page 104. This is the edition I'm using. Is It's got an introduction by Madeline Langle. Um, who is this publisher? Harper One. Okay. She says this. Unfortunately, his creation is safe from the interference of other wills only as long as it remains in his head. By materializing his poem, that is by writing it down and publishing it, he subjects it to the impact of alien wills. These alien wills can, if they like, become actively aware of all the possible wrong words and call them into positive being. They can, for example, misquote, misinterpret, and deliberately alter the poem. This evil is contingent upon the poet's original good. You cannot misquote a poem that is not there. And the poet is, in that sense, responsible for all subsequent misquotations of his work but one can scarcely hold him guilty of them. So the twisting of creation, the, um, yeah, the twisting of creation, the poor imitation of creation, the accusations we have of God against things that when things aren't quite right, in a sense, that's God's doing because he created things. But in another sense, it's not. It's just an accident of, that's what happens when you create things. You have, Things that aren't quite up to par to that to that first item. Also, if you're interested in literary, just understanding why you don't like a text or why you don't like a book or a painting or something, you can read her section on scaling trinities, which is kind of like triangles that are off. Really great. When the father, when the idea is not really in relation to the energy and uh, or when it's like energy laden and there's not enough idea and or it was too spirit laden and too sentimental. It's really great. Okay. The Trinity is not then such a mystery after all, at least no more than the human creative mind. There are things all around us coexisting, being the same yet distinct. And if this metaphor doesn't work for you, this idea of the father as the idea, the son as the energy, the spirit as a power, that's okay. As Sayer says, for other minds, other metaphors.
Thank you for tuning in as we discuss Sayer's masterpiece, The Mind of the Maker. It is a remarkable book. And if you are interested in ways of understanding the Trinity or in understanding the creative mind or literature, you should consider it a necessary read. If you have any questions or comments, please email me at lindsayannshoal at gmail.com or leave a comment on the YouTube edition of this episode. Have a great day and peace be with you. Thank you.